Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from an isolated LAFC community, week by week, match by match, fan by fan. Today we have the esteemed pleasure of being joined digitally all the way from the UK by Mr. James Montague, author of four best-selling football novels, including 31 Nil, When Friday Clums, Billionaire's Club, and more importantly, what we're going to discuss today, 1312-1312, Among the Ultras. So, James, thank you so much for making yourself available all the way across the pond and joining us today. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. As soon as I heard from you guys, I you know, wanted to speak to you because I had, I had such a kind of great experience coming to L.A., and, you know, coming to the stadium and watching a game. So, you know, it was, it was no hassle at all. For those of you not familiar with the book, LAFC does make an appearance in 1312. It is a story of ultra culture, supporter culture throughout the world of football. And it takes many, many dark alleys in which you have traversed and some harrowing situations you have placed yourself in personally. We're really fascinated to hear about your experiences within supporter culture. And then obviously a description of how you took in a game Pride Night last year, Freddie Mercury, Tifo, and everything that went down <laughs> here at Bank of California Stadium. In the book 1312, uh, which I guess is quite relevant now because, you know, it's an acronym that means ACAB, you know, all cops are bastards. And it's not necessarily a view that I'm taking on that. It's just, it's a common theme amongst all ultras around the world that I've noticed. Is I would see those numbers pretty much on every single uh, stadium wall, whether it's in Belgrade or Sarajevo or Casablanca or wherever. And what's interesting is that I keep on getting sent pictures of that number now because it's it's kind of been popularized because of the protests following the murder of George Floyd. So, in fact, one of them was a picture, I think, LAPD's headquarters. Somebody written 1312 on the front. But, um, you know, it's, it's a fan culture around the world, especially ultras is one that is very kind of anti-authority. It's an outsider culture. At the end of the book, after kind of telling the story of how this has grown up in South America and Europe and all, right, all the way around the world, I wanted to come to the US because I knew that there, there's a burgeoning kind of soccer fan culture there, that, and it's a lot more progressive than in a lot of places around the world. And I was really interested to come to LAFC because I mean, partly because I know Bob Bradley. I've been... I've interviewed him numerous times for the New York Times and for, you know, followed his career in Egypt because I spent a lot of time in Egypt when he was there as national team coach. So I knew he was here and I knew that this is a city that is a soccer city. And this is a club that was finally kind of in the middle of like in downtown. It was something that could kind of capture something I think a lot of other clubs in the area have kind of missed. So I wanted to come and see what how you build a soccer culture, soccer supporter culture from nothing. And I found out, obviously, it wasn't from nothing. It's, it's, it's decades, generations of soccer culture could have built on top of each other. And LAFC just seems to have captured the imagination of, of people in the right way. So, yeah, for me, it was kind of, I don't know, trying to show people that American soccer culture or fan culture isn't plastic, which it does have a reputation for, but I think erroneously. And, you know, from what I saw, I think LAFC was, is a great example of, of the good 
good things that can happen, even even built in such a short space of time. I want to cut that last little soundbite right there and share it with every single person in the LAFC community. Uh, those are beautiful words yeah. about us. Thank you for that, sir. I do want to apologize to everyone listening today. I am currently on vacation at the moment, and I am on a working farm in the middle of nowhere in Utah. <laughs> so if you hear tractors and plows and dogs barking and horses and roosters in the background, I, I apologize. We're trying to bring you guys some content even while I am... Uh, I am outside of the friendly confines of Los Angeles, although, and we've sort of touched on it already, perhaps not so friendly confines at the moment. As the time of recording, my place of business is currently under protection of the National Guard, and we know that many members of the LAFC community have been impacted by protesting and riots throughout the community, and it really is quite a strange time to be an Angelino, and certainly an appropriate time to have our guest on as we discuss the themes throughout ultra and supporter culture and how it sort of coincides with these political movements that we currently see playing out across the city. But again, sir, thank you so much for joining us here. And apologies to everyone for any of the background noise I might be creating. I wanted to ask something because you, you did say that the U.S. supporter culture felt more progressive. Can you expand on what exactly that means? Yeah, I mean, when... You know, when I started writing this book, or not even when I started writing this book, I mean, when I started reporting on soccer, politics and culture around the world, can I say 10, 15 years ago, what's quite clear, especially if you go to kind of Eastern Europe and the Balkans, where I've lived uh, for the past few years, you know, Italy, places like that, you do, you know, there is a, ultras are very political. And a lot of the groups have taken on kind of, kind of far right wing, far right, in some cases, kind of. Uh, ultra-nationalist kind of politics. And it's quite common. I mean, you find it mu much more with uh, right-wing ultras than you would with left-wing ultras. And that's not to say there aren't left-wing ultras. I mean, Germany has, again, has quite a progressive uh, football supporter scene. And I know that the 3252 was heavily influenced by the unity of Borussia Dortmund. And you can see, you can see a lot of the similarities between the German uh, fan scene and the US fan scene. You know, mostly is a, you know, if you looked at the politics and a lot of it is on the right. But what was clear is with the US scene is that football, the people who could have watched football and consumed football, you know, they come from a much more progressive strata of society. Maybe I'm not sure exactly why, maybe because it's a much more middle class kind of pastime. I have no idea. But, you know, whether it was Atlanta United or whether it was, you know, the New York Cosmos, you know, it was clear that it was a much more inclusive space, a much more women-friendly space, you know, much more friendly space when it comes to gay fans, black fans. You know, these are all issues which are, they're faces you don't often see on the curve at many games, whether it's in Italy or, or when they have the, those problems. And so, yeah, there was it was quite clear very early on when I was doing my research that, you know, if I wanted to find out much more about a progressive fan culture, which was much more welcoming to people who have been marginalised in other fan cultures, then, uh, you know, America had to be the place to come to because it's a much more diverse place. Germany does have a progressive culture, but it's obviously less diverse than, say, LA, which is like the entire world in a city. I think those are some really, really interesting themes there that you've touched upon, and we're going to dive wholeheartedly into some of that, especially your experiences in Italy. And I recall you regaling some of your, your time in Lazio and, and some of the crazy things that you have experienced in the process of researching for this novel. But... Mm. Before we dive into your book and your history with the game of football, 
We just kind of wanted to touch on something else that took place today at the time of recording. Chris, you have some information on perhaps us starting up and having a season here in 2020? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just before this interview started, uh, and today is Wednesday, the um, MLS Players Association came out and made an announcement that uh, they ratified a new collective bargaining agreement, and now it's going to run through 2025 instead of the agreement that was originally going to be through 2024, and that vote also allows the season to resume, the 2020 season to resume, and I believe that moving forward they're going to have the tournament-style play in Orlando at the ESPN Walt Disney World Complex. I think they're still coming out with more and more details about how the season is going to uh, proceed. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are going to have a season. There is not going to be a lockout. And that's good news. That's good news for everybody that uh, the MLS is going to start up again in in about a month or so. Fantastic news. Uh, We know that it might not involve every single star player. And that's certainly going to be a big talking point as more of the pieces come out. Christian, you were telling us that there might be some pieces contained within this that allow players with expecting wives or young children to not participate. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there was some leaks yesterday with some of the MLS reporters saying that there could be stipulations in the collective bargaining agreement for this time being if players felt uncomfortable or or unsafe to their family's health especially if they're pregnant or young to to potentially be uh, or have the option to opt out so you know more to come on that I, i think we were offline we were mentioning like it'd be an interesting derby even though without fans to have uh, the Galaxy against uh, LAFC without Chicharito and Vela because both of their wives are expecting at the moment. What I mean, I think that would be initially when you hear about, you know, uh, an LA derby, a 110 derby, and it taking place completely outside of Los Angeles, outside of California, you know, completely across the globe, right? I mean, if you laid it out on a map, this would be akin to like a North London derby taking place in Istanbul, right? Um, you know, that's that's roughly the distance between Los Angeles and Orlando. So, I mean, in and of itself, it's so bizarre to think of here you have the biggest football game played in California and it would be played in Florida and potentially without the two biggest stars, the L3 stars for the Mexican national team not participating, which has been at the onset of this season so much of the marketing behind this entire season for Los Angeles behind those two players the thought of a t-word game being played without any traffic and without a chicharito uh, or a vela that that really or does fans. seem like yeah our fans yeah a very well, that's, startling I mean, that's one of the things that is you know it's quite i'm quite conflicted about this because i mean there is this you know without without uh, fans football is nothing you know this there've been lots of ultra groups in europe kind of protesting especially in germany protesting the return of football without fans that it, it shouldn't happen and it's putting money and profit before the fan experience because it's a, it's a game for the fans. We, I, I have some sympathy for that, but then I also have sympathy for the idea that there are two things with that. The one is that not having fans in the stadium during football matches has also kind of made people realise how valuable fans are to the experience. Whereas with the right direction it's been going in, especially in England and in Europe with the Champions League and whatever's going to follow it, is that you know, this is a TV game. This is a game to be watched around the world and that fans are kind of like a nice adornment to it, but they're, they're not central to it, you know, because the economics of the sport don't rely on people going to the games anymore, you know, it's because of these inflated, massive contracts. But what's clear is that those TV contracts 
are worth significantly less without fans in the stadium. They're an absolutely... So I hope fans kind of work out, especially ultra groups, can leverage that in the future and say, look, without us, you don't have a product you can sell. But if they're smart, they can definitely... There's a discussion to be had taken forward where they're taken much more seriously. But on the other side of that, there is another issue, which is, I think, you know, people who care about fan culture around the world have to accept that in the short term, you know, there's no point... Uh, kind of fighting having closed door games if there is no football at the end of it if your club goes out of business at the end of it and i think that's the thing is if we don't do this now in this way like for instance having the kind of like a final four type setup with mls you know where you all go to one place and play you know i'm cool with that if it's not a long-term solution but in the short term i can't see what else the leagues around the world can do to fulfill their contracts without you know, because if they don't do it, they're bankrupt. The game is over, you know, or, or it's certainly diminished significantly. So, yeah, it's a tough situation to be a fan. But I hope, you know, this is one way of keeping the game alive until we can return to it. I'm curious to see what the infection rate numbers will look like two weeks from now. Because yeah. there have been a good amount of people that have been getting in those mask gatherings and they haven't really been social distancing and they haven't really been wearing their masks. And so I think this will also kind of be an indication of how it spreads and things like that. And this will either, you know, prove that all of the people, the uh, politicians and the medical professionals are all still 100% correct with their evaluation of the coronavirus or if there is a, uh, a way to reevaluate, you know, for, you know, whatever it is, a fourth, fifth, seventh, 20th time to reevaluate how we're going to handle this. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a, fans are returning, by the way, in some places. I mean, you've got, I think the in Hungary, they've got the cup final tonight. Um, I think they've sold 10,000 tickets out of 70,000. They've got to have every, every seat, three seats between everybody. So they are, it is being trailed, um, the idea of fans slowly coming back. And uh, the problem is, I think, you know, yeah, you're right. I think these mass gatherings, I think, will test the science. I mean, it's a low risk group in one respect because, I mean, there's a lot of young people and young people are low risk. But it's also there's a lot of black and ethnic minority protesters as well, which the early evidence suggests that they're they're a higher risk group regardless of age. So if there isn't a, if there isn't a spike and, you know, touch wood, uh, pray to God, there won't be. Um, then I think that will be a, a it will be a good sign for whether, you know, we, we can. I mean, of course, protest first, but obviously have other mass gatherings which we want to get involved in as well. So, you know, and with that, we do want to uh, point out that LAFC has come out and they are supporting the peaceful protests and they are taking a stance politically. And uh, Jonathan, I think you're more attuned to, to the position of the club. So do you want to touch on that? I think obviously anyone who has seen the video of the horrible thing that took place or anyone who has been following closely to this entire story as it's developed, it's very hard not to see an egregious and heinous act having taken place. This has shown a pattern throughout the United States, a pattern in which people are frankly fed up with. And it's created this situation where everyone across the country has felt the need to come forward and speak out. Now, exactly how those feelings have come about and, and, and what exactly we can say is, is different for each one of us, right? But our club has come out and fairly straightforward said that 
what has taken place was wrong and that we need to stand in support of our African-American brethren. And we need to be able to say that justice and equality have to play out the same for everybody everywhere. And if we see inequalities in that system, then we have a problem. And I think anyone looking at the system right now can say that there's clearly an inequality and clearly a problem. Now, how we go about addressing that and what tools we use, that's where the real sort of uh, infighting happens at that point, right? Because then you have two people on two very diametrically opposed sides in this whole process as to how do we go about affecting change? And so the club has said that they are in support of change, and I think that's as much as the club has said. And then the 3252 has come out and said, you know, look, we're going to stand right there in the streets and attempt to peacefully protest uh, and be involved in as much of the conversation piece as we can. But many members of the community have certainly come out against the violence piece of it as well, too. And I think that's something that separates LAFC and LAFC supporter culture from the rest of the soccer world. Here we have the institution of the club itself coming out and making a political statement, something that many, many clubs throughout the world would avoid making. And then we have a supporters group that comes out in support of nonviolent protest. And those are something that, and, and certainly our guests can speak more to this about how many cultures throughout the footballing world would attempt to seek a violent solution first before they attempted to reach a nonviolent solution. And so I think that's sort of where we are at within the culture of LAFC and what's going on globally and exactly how that differentiates us from the rest of the footballing world. It is uh, somewhat of an alarming circumstance to be involved in, right? And I think the club was somewhat forced when you see everything that's going on in the community around us to at least have some sort of statement. And I think they've done so professionally. Curious to hear your thoughts, though. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's horrific seeing how it's all playing out over in the US. I mean, I suspect it's probably going to get a lot worse before it can ever get better. I'm not sure how it can be solved. I mean, these are issues that go back, you know, decades, in some cases, centuries. And fortunately, you have a president at the moment who whose only path to being re-elected is to get, is to throw more petrol onto the fire. I mean, the, you know, I mean, it's always, a, it's always a shock. And I think a lot of English, British people have this when they come to America to see the level of militarization with the police it, it it's shocking and the level of the absolute impunity that the police can act with and one of the things that i mean i've spent a lot of time in a lot of riots i've spent a lot of time uh, i mean i know it's quite a trite comparison a lot of people have been trying to compare what's happening to like iraq or places like that and i'm not, I'm not going to make that kind of comparison but it does remind me very much of when i was in brazil in 2013 now brazil in 2013 was a place that you know, Brazil, again, is another place that has long-held, simmering tensions. You know, there is a, a white power structure and a kind of mixed race and black uh, population that is excluded from that. And the police very much kind of reflect that power dynamic, dynamic as well. And in 2013, there were huge protests all across Brazil, mainly to do with the, the a coming World Cup. Uh, and the Olympics, which they were very unhappy about because money was being spent on that and money was being stolen from that rather than, you know, the terrible healthcare, terrible infrastructure. Um, and those kind of, that level of violence, I'd be shocked, I'd be surprised at how similar uh, the pictures have been to what I saw there. And, you know, again, it's another, of course, you can't condone violence, but there is also, you know, I think it was Martin Luther King that said, you know, a riot is the language of the dispossessed. And that is something that, you know, 
we have to deal with. That is a, that is a fact. You know, just saying oh, all violence is wrong. Well, violence has its consequences. The root of where that comes from, and if there are no other roots for change, then it's quite normal that you would see it exploding in that way. And you know, I I, I just can't see which voices are going to be the voices that pacify this, because. You know, unfortunately, you have, uh, you know, a, a GOP that is not reigning in the president. Um, you have a Democratic Party kind of in disarray because of a very divisive primary uh, season that is just had with its presumptive nominee of Biden, who doesn't seem to be able to bring like, a unity to the Democrats. I worry about November, to be honest. I worry about how, how America will look at that point. And it's, it, I, f I feel this is just the, this is the beginning of something. It's, it's, a, it's an absolutely essential thing. I mean, this has come up a couple of times. I mean, I was in St. Louis in, in uh, 2016 after the Ferguson kind of riots. And I think after that, Obama uh, banned military procurement for the police, although uh, Trump brought it in shortly afterwards. So there have been these moments, there have been these moments where because of the advent of technology in people's hands, you can film something that would have been just denied a few years ago. And these incidents of innocent black men or from police force being used, disproportionate police force being used. So this is a, this is a real issue that needs to be dealt with. I just I cannot see how the American political structure can deal with it um, until, unfortunately, the current president leaves office. And even then, if he loses the 2020 election, you know, you've still got till January to deal with him, you know, in power and wounded. And to me, it's just about how, because what happens in America affects the rest of the world. So we're all, we're all rooting for you to, to pull through this. But, you know, I think that we're entering a very dangerous six month period. Definitely it's a long way to find book, by the way, but I mean, you know, that's that's how I've been seeing it over the past couple of weeks. But you know, this is this is all the current event stuff and these are all the things that are swirling around our environment. So this is very much, you know, yes, not the reason why we had you come on, but it is definitely good to hear people and other opinions, especially opinions from outside the United States. You were gonna say something, Jonathan? Yeah, I would just say, you know, look, if we wanted to wrap up this thought for a moment, there are kind of two quotes that stand out in my mind with regards to our current situation, right? One comes from a Buddhist monk, uh, Nyanopanika, who said it's much easier to unite people under the banner of a common hate than of a shared love. And I think, you know, that that kind of hits home when you think of what's going on currently in the United States. And, you know, with L.A. in particular, um, to throw another quote at you, perhaps a bit diametrically opposed to that would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Ice Cube, who said uh, injustice drives you crazy and it drove L.A. insane. You know, that's that's a very, very dark side of the world in which we are currently experiencing and how we choose to process that as a community, something that we firmly support here, is going to be really trying for us over for the next few months and, and how exactly LAFC and the 3252 and our supporter culture and the greater culture of LA chooses to navigate these waters and, and America as a whole is going to be very, very fascinating. But what else fascinates me is the story behind our guest here today. And I do want to kind of transition into the interview portion of this. I'm sure we could talk about politics and, and the current landscape of America for hours on end here. But I would like to get back to the world of football and specifically our guest who's been so gracious to join us from thousands of miles away today, who's written so many passionate books about the world of football. And we know very little about how you got into football. Uh, we understand that you were a Hammers fan. So why don't you take us through how you fell in love with yeah. the beautiful game? 
Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you don't really have a choice in England. You know, you're 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 kind of born a football fan, and you know, I grew up in in Essex. I'm at, I'm currently in Lowestoft, which is the fur, the furthest east, the most easterly point of the United Kingdom. Grew up not far from London. Family of West Ham fans. My father was a West Ham fan. His father was a West Ham fan. I, th- I think his father was a West Ham fan. So we're going back a few years now. So I didn't really have a choice. You know, I was a West Ham fan, whether I liked it or not. So from a very young age, I would start going uh, to see West Ham with my father. And what was interesting was that I was a bit touched. The first time we went, I think we stood in the West Stand of, of the bowling ground, most commonly known Upton Park. And I remember I, could, I must have been nine. And I remember seeing the North Bank, which was the area where the loudest fans were that stood behind the goal, that sang all the way through, back when we still had uh, standing in English football, where the ICF, the Intercity Crew, kind of the most famous kind of hooligan group, one of the most hulu- famous hooligan groups in the world, you know, that's, the, that's where their power base was. And I saw that and I was just like, I was mesmerised. Like, I wanted some of that. I wanted some of that heat, that song, that danger. Uh, like, I wanted to be a part of it. And it's amazing that when I was writing 1312, I would ask every capo, every ultra, whether it was in Italy or the Balkans or wherever, and say, like, how did you become an ultra? And it's amazing how similar the kind of origin story is, you know, that they would come with their parents to go and watch Roma, for instance. I met this one guy called uh, Contucci, who's kind of a lawyer, but he was a kind of one of the major ultra figures in the Curva Sud in the Stadio Olimpico for Roma uh, during the 70s and 80s. And now he's a, he's, a, he's a lawyer that hires other ultra lawyers to try to kind of fight the police to overturn banning orders. Like he's, he's like kind of given his life over now to that. And what was interesting is he had such a similar origin story. He would come with his father, sit in the West Stand, and he would look at the curve of suit and be like, I want to get to that. And so you then, you know, in your early teens, you end up going. And that's exactly what happened to me. I would end up from the age of 11 to about 14. I would go to the North Bank. You know, you try and get there, uh, getting as, as close to the centre as you could, to near the noise and that heat and that danger. And, you know, uh, I could often not really see the game. And, you know, it's not really a great place to watch a football match from behind the goal. But it was football wasn't just about football. It was about a collective experience. And that left a kind of huge mark on me because, you know, football isn't just something that you can play on, on FIFA or that you can just watch. I mean, you can. I mean, I do love watching football as a game. But, you know, for me, the the the, the magic, the kind of missing element to it in in any of those scenarios is the collective experience of being together with people in a moment. And it, that never left me. And so when I ended up becoming a journalist, after I went to university, I studied politics, wanted to become a journalist. You know, it wasn't necessarily to be a football journalist, but I automatically saw the football through political eyes and would write these stories. But I wasn't going to the press box. I was going into the, into the curve, into the terrace behind the goal mainly because I didn't have a press card, so it would be easier that way. Uh, uh, but, you know, and so you end up having not a perspective on, on the game, not just because you grew up that way, but also because that's how my career was. And I, was I was much more comfortable going with the fans than I was going in the press box. And so that's kind of informed everything that's happened afterwards. So, the you know, being a journalist and being one among the ultras, right, you... A journalist is viewed uh, a certain way. They don't necessarily always want to be the most open with you. So in your earlier days when you didn't have that press card and you were sitting in the terraces, how receptive were they to allowing you in there? 
well, it was much easier because you know I could I, I could say I wasn't a journalist with a bit more um, <laughs> you know bit oh, more truthfulness. Okay. You know, so, uh, you know, I would, and also when I first started out, I was writing mainly about the Middle East because I found myself in Dubai from about 2004 onwards. And we'll get to Bob Bradley in a minute because this, this is kind of connected to him. You know, so from 2004 onwards, I was in the Middle East writing a lot about Middle Eastern football culture and politics because, uh, you know, I found that the, the correlation between the two was really quite stark, quite distinct. And so, you know, I would go to Israel and write about the ultra scene there or, I would go to Iran and find out about, you know, the national team had qualified for the 2006 World Cup or go to Yemen and find out that the national team had all been banned from the Olympic qualifiers because they were all taking this uh, leaf drug called CAT, which I'm sure you probably probably get somewhere in uh, in L.A., which is like a leaf drug you get from the Horn of Africa, which I mean, it's pretty powerful stuff. But it's culturally very accepted in Yemen. But it turns out that the drug in it is on the IOC banned list. So everybody oh, wow. was on it and they all got banned from playing these Olympic qualifiers. And and it was a story that said a lot about Yemen and about the fact that, you know, it had this, you know, kind of drug problem that it kind of didn't really want to kind of deal with or couldn't deal with because of poverty. And so I ended up writing a lot about the Middle East. I wrote my first book, When Friday Comes, spent a lot of time in Egypt, where I spent a lot of time with the fans, the ultras of Al-Akhli in particular, the biggest team in Cairo. And so, you know, in a lot of cases, they were kind of quite happy to see me. It wasn't like going to Italy or Serbia where a journalist turns up. I mean, they, they've got years of animosity and dislike. You know, they were quite happy to see that. It was, it was a more friendly atmosphere, you know, a more open atmosphere in Iraq than I would find in Rome, like in Baghdad than I would in Rome, which is kind of kind of crazy way of looking at it. But and it's because of that experience in Egypt in particular. You know, I was there all the way through the revolution before, during and after. I ended up meeting Bob. In I think it was in 2011. He'd just taken the he'd just taken the Egypt job. They interviewed him at a kind of at a hotel um, outside Cairo, and they just had the Port Said massacre. So I think this would have been about 2012, actually. And they just had the Port Said massacre, and uh, which is when uh, 70 plus uh, Al Ahly fans were killed at a stadium. And Bob was the, Bob wasn't at the stadium, but Bob was in Egypt, and you know the way he conducted himself was absolutely exemplary you know he went and marched with the fans when there was a when there was a tribute march the next day demanding justice he donated money for the to the families of the dead uh, him and his wife Lindsay and uh, so we, we ended up spending a lot of time together in Egypt watching him trying to navigate the national team trying to get to the world cup all the while whilst a lot of the players were grieving from this horrible stadium incident that they'd witnessed plus the revolution was falling to pieces and i really saw the best of him as a coach and also as a man. And so we've always stayed in contact really after that. And, you know, I saw him at Le Havre when he was there and, and when he, you know, obviously now he's at, he's at LAFC and, you know, saw him last time I was here. So it was one of the reasons I wanted to come, you know, cause I knew that Bob wouldn't come to a place I wouldn't like, I don't think. Well, yeah, future guest I've of the show. That. there. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, can you Bob. put in a good I, word for us? <laughs> I'll, I'll mention it. I'll mention it. I don't remember, you know, there's been a few different documentaries that have shown stuff about LAFC, but I do remember seeing something about Bob in in his time in Egypt, and, and I was very much taken aback about how it was just after that, that horrific accident where the people died in, in Egypt. And, and you do see Bob. They, they, I, he had just arrived and there was videos saying that people were recommending, you know, don't go out there. But Bob was very much like, hey, I, 
I need to go out mm. there. I want to see what's going on. And, and that just shows his true character. That's what's most impressive, I think, about him was that his run with the U.S. men's team was phenomenal. If you think of some of those results, if you think of like Landon Donovan's goal against Algeria, against Algeria if you think mm-hmm. about the kind of Confederations Cup, I mean, you know, it's some incredible experiences, incredible results. And, you know, I, I felt a little bit like he left under a cloud. Like, I'm not sure what the American sports media are expecting from a national team that really hasn't done anything in the past, but he really elevated US international soccer to a kind of new level. And, you know, and then he left and he, he, he took, you know, one of the toughest jobs you could take in world football. Egypt, by the way, you know, at the time had probably the best team in Africa. So he had a lot of talent at his disposal. So he knew what he was doing. And it wasn't just a job that he was taking to, you know, get out of the country. He knew he was taking on a job where that was a team, you know, you had a young Mohamed Salah coming through. You had uh, Mohamed Abutreka, who's, a, you know, one of the finest players I've ever seen play. Never played in Europe, never chose never to play in Europe. But, you know, this is a player that had all the talent of Zinedine Zidane, but chose to stay, you know, as a one-club man, basically. So he knew what he was doing. But then, you know, even after Egypt, you know, when, you know, there's the Kamasi result where the team loses 6-1 and effectively World Cup dream is over, you know, he doesn't quit. He goes back knowing that it's going to be a furnace when they get back to Cairo. You know, that the people are angry, they're calling for his head, but he goes back, he takes that game and they beat Ghana, you know, a team which is kind of like a nemesis for him, you know, and he goes back and they win that game. And then, you know, where does he go to next? He goes and takes a pretty unfancy job. He could have walked into any MLS job, you know, well-paid, no trouble. He takes a small team in Norway and then a second division team in France, you know, and gets within one goal of promotion to the the French top league, you know, and then takes the Swansea job, which, you know, was a brave move. I mean, it's something he's always wanted all his life. But, you know, I think a lot of that was down to a lot of how that ended. It was a lot down to the, the English public is still not quite used to having American voices uh, you know in in the locker room i think in time people look back at it as a quite an important kind of moment because i think i think we've got used to the players but the the coaching is a different different kind of kettle of fish most of us here in la don't think that bob bradley got a fair go at swansea no Did you say from an english yeah. so that resonates with the english perspective as well well, it resonates with my perspective. I don't. Th- I think there's a lot of anti-Americanism when it comes to American soccer and American soccer culture, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have LAFC as my, uh, as what you know a chapter in my book because you know I had a good feeling that it, you know it, it is it's kind of derided as a kind of plastic culture. You know, like oh, you know, there's always that video of that guy from Miami. What's his name? <laughs> the guy who's taking who's always always kind of offering out firms for fighting and stuff. Um, is his name Alvarez? Yeah. 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 I mean, they're, they're, I mean, they're so funny, but that is kind of the prism that a lot of English fans would, would see, you know, that even the use of the word soccer is seen as quite divisive. I mean, soccer is an English word. I mean, I'm pro using right. the word soccer, but for a certain type of English fan, soccer is an American invention. It's football, not soccer. And so that debate, you know, always comes out when there's an American player or American coach or anything to do about America and football culture, that somehow they're late to the game and, you know, and it's all a bit plastic. And that is the kind of prevailing culture that kind of Bob kind of came into. I mean, obviously it's a Welsh club, but, you know, it's a prevailing culture that he walked into. And I think that unless he'd won the first 10 games, and even then that doesn't really guarantee long-term success, unless he'd kind of gone in and, you know, 
was top of the league after te- there's nothing that he could have really done that would have won them over. Well, please don't judge us Americans by what happens and what comes out of Florida. Just you know, <laughs> that's the truth. Uh, the, it's just, some of the videos. Are, I mean, they're, they're, I, I I couldn't believe they were. I thought this got to be a joke, right? There's got to be some guys playing the role of this. But he, he sounds like quite a fascinating character. I'd like to sit down and, and, and talk to him. I mean, he's like, I think he's kind of ex-communist Antifa. Isn't he? He's like, an odd one, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Florida Florida is a unique place. It has a spectrum of types of people. And uh, Is he Florida man? Is that, is that what the... That's the joke. <laughs> is, he, is, he, is he an archetypal Florida man? I would say so, for uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if you were to say Florida man hooligan, you know, I mean, that's him right there. But, you know, I mean, when he you know, owns his own Muay Thai dojo, right? I mean, so there's just so many layers to how crazy he is with, uh, you know, the drinking at crack of dawn and the clobber and all the crazy stuff that he goes through is uh, is not, I would say, a fair representation of America. Maybe it is a fair representation yeah. of Florida, but probably <laughs> not a fair representation of America. But I am really curious about what sort of inspired you to come forward with the book 1312, knowing that it was such a provocative title, knowing that it was a fan subject that was going to dive deeply into themes of you know, racism and extremism and intolerance and violence. I mean, there's so much there that one would consider a touchy subject, right? Yeah. And yet well, you dove yeah. for it. To be honest, I mean, you know, since I started writing, you know, seriously about football, the ultra scene and, and fan culture has been an ever-present in all of it, you know. And it was also something that I was, I was aware that, you know, because obviously 1312 is kind of an anti-police thing, but it's actually used as an anti-authority thing anti-elite thing so we are part of that and we are seen as part of that journalists are part of that we are two sides of the same coin when it comes to the police so it's always been difficult being accepted by that group that makes me more interested you know why am i excluded from this because part of me in my heart feels that i am that if i wasn't a journalist i would be accepted in that because that's what flicks their switch you know what makes their heart race is what makes my heart race so I feel in one way I'm kind of like them, but also rejected because I'm a journalist. But everywhere, but the fact that it is so secretive and yet it is so ubiquitous, you know, it is, the, apart from perhaps gaming, it's the biggest youth culture in the world. And it's a youth culture that learns how, that has learned how to, is very political, has learned how to protect itself, uh, operates with a degree of anonymity in the modern world in the 21st century, which is almost unheard of in other youth subcultures. And so at this point in my career, had made enough kind of inroads, I think, and contacts that I felt that I could do this, that I could be taken at face value without having to go undercover because I didn't want to go undercover. I wanted to be like, listen, I'm here. I'm doing this. You know, just got to trust me on it. And the access you got is frankly unprecedented. I mean, it's it's amazing the various different cultures in which you gained access to. Yeah, it was so it's a mixture of, I mean, a lot of the times it's luck. A lot of the times, I mean, during the book, uh, there were times where I didn't get access. And so obviously they don't make, make, they don't make the stories in the book. I mean, there's one time I did write about Morocco, which has, North Africa has pretty much, I think, the best kind of pyro and choreography and ultra scene in the world right now. Someone like Roger Casablanca is just absolutely insane when you see what they're, what they're doing. And, you know, I turned up there. And I actually, I do write this story because I think it's illuminating, you know, that everything was quite tenuous. Like you, you, somebody would have to vouch for you, right? So it's all done like this guy knows you. I know this guy. Okay, this guy's okay. 
like there's no website that you apply to there's no there's no press office you know you just it's it's like you are hustling like every single interview every single person you want to speak to because they're so suspicious of you so i've been contacting this guy who i don't know but he knows another guy who knows me and i end up in casablanca and i made a mistake basically there was a game on before the game i wanted to see so i visited it i went to the game it was it was amazing it was like i think it was Itihad Tanja versus Raj Casablanca in one of the smaller stadiums in the city. And I turned up thinking, this is brilliant. And there was like an entire stand midweek on a Wednesday, completely uh, midday, like completely full. Like it was spilling over. People were fighting each other because there was some kind of disagreement between some of the groups. And I was there, you know, I'm a six foot two white guy. You know, I stood out and saw a thumb and immediately like the police nabbed me like straight away. They're like, bam. Like, who are you? Spoke to me in English. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm doing a story about the ultras, you know, da, da, da. you know, straight away, like this guy was interested in me. He wanted to know who I was. He said, oh, we, we can, we, we're good friends with them. We can, uh, yeah, get, here's my number. Call me. All the guys saw me being, you know, collared by a policeman and it was over. They didn't even reply to my messages. Like, didn't, like I was out. No. So I was in Casablanca and nowhere to go pretty much. So, there, there are those elements, but there's also elements like, for instance, I mean, there's a, I don't know if you guys follow Copper 90, but there's a guy called Martino, you know, he's an Angelino. I mean, obviously he's... He's a Galaxy fan. He's a Carlson fan, yeah. So he's, uh, which he'd hate, he'd hate me for saying that. But uh, yeah, but he's also, <laughs> he's also one of the smartest, most connected guys. Like he shouldn't be involved in soccer. He should be like building rockets or something, you know. But he's a really, you know, his contacts, especially because he's, he's, um, he's got roots in Italy, so his contact, and he's obsessed with fan culture as well. And he opened so many doors in Italy. And once one door opens, other doors open. So, you know, obviously the the ultra movement, as it's called, comes from Italy late 1968 onwards. And, you know, getting access to that scene, it was quite interesting because the, the Lazio, the Illidocibola, who were kind of like a neo-fascist, was a neo-fascist uh, group. I mean, they've been disbanded since, since we did the interview, not because of the interview, of course, but, you know, they, they were a difficult uh, group to usually meet. But what we found was that, you know, it was like, this isn't an expose, you know? I mean, of course, if you say something stupid, I'm going to write it down, but like, I want to know how you started and, and, and why, why you do what you do, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the reasoning for it, you know? And, what was interesting was that when we were trying, we had to go to a, a tattoo parlor in Rome to meet one of the lieutenants who was tattooing someone as, he, as Martino was making my case to him in Italian. And what was interesting was that they were, what kind of made them agree to it or think they should agree to it was my previous book was called The Billionaires Club. And it's about the super rich mainly being terrible people, taking over football and doing terrible things, right? And so there's a big chapter slagging off Stan Kroenke is building a stadium next to the Bank of California or near the Bank of California Stadium. And so, yeah, I mean, I went to St. Louis and met all the Rams fans who are absolutely furious with Kroenke, you know, who now owns Arsenal, you know, in the English Premier League. And so, weirdly, in the horseshoe shape of politics, a book that was seen as kind of quite anti-rich in some ways resonated with people on the far right as well because they're kind of anti-rich and anti-globalization. So it was, a, it, it was okay, all right, he's not one of us, but this is something that they, they were like, that, that was kind of a passport that got me access to them. So it was difficult. Um, you know, at times there's, there's some really big moral issues we, we had about 
the fact that you're dealing with people who are avowedly fascist and how you deal with what they're telling you. But at all times when I was writing it, I was I was honest with the reader about what it was I was thinking, what I was trying to achieve. So, yeah, the access was incredible. I don't. If I had to do it again, I'm. It would never happen like that. A lot of it was luck. A lot of it was, you know, I was just in the right place at the right time. You know, if if in some places, especially Argentina, things could have gone in a very different direction, and I might not be here sitting with you. So, Indonesia as well. So, yeah, it was. You know, it wasn't planned to be like this. It just kind of, it just ended up like this. You mentioned uh, about your trip to Morocco and, and how it didn't work out. What were some of the other locations that you had tried to go to that you just weren't able to get access and you weren't able to, to write a story about? So, you know, writing nonfiction books isn't a particularly profitable <laughs> operation. You know, it's it's something, I mean, it can be if you sell a million copies. I've not sold a million copies, but if you did, it's, it would be quite profitable. But so often what I do is I'd use my journalism to go to a place and then I'd spend extra time there to kind of research a chapter often. And with this, I couldn't really do that because uh, what I discovered uh, at the beginning of 2019, I did a story for the New York Times about Wisła Krakow, which is a team from my mother's country of Poland, where the ultras or the, the hooligan firm attached to the ultras basically took over the club and used it as a kind of front for money laundering and all sorts of stuff. And, th and these guys, you know, were neo-Nazis as well, you know, real, real extreme white nationalists. And I did that story. Nobody, I, I couldn't speak to any of the group, but that's because most of them were in prison at the time. They'd all been kind of rounded up. But what I found was that when that came out like there was just nobody wanted to speak to me in the polish scene so after that i made the decision not to do any more journalism around the book because which cost me you know it cost me an arm and a leg but it meant that it, you know i wasn't you know burning down everything before i got there russia was another country that i, I really wanted to get a bit more information about and do a bit more about that but you know it's quite difficult getting a visa to get in the country i managed to get one for the world cup and I thought, if I go there early, I can go, you know, do some research for the book. But then when I got there, I discovered that uh, the authorities were so worried about the ultras who are often used by the authorities when they need them, because a lot of them, again, are on the right, white nationalist in particular. So they're, use, they're useful tools for, for, for various different political kind of actions. Uh, but they've all been sent out of the cities to go on holiday during the duration of the World Cup because they didn't want them to cause any trouble. So I got there and it was just like there's no one that literally they're all they won't talk to you anyway, but they're all kind of spread. They're not in the cities. So there weren't any ultras around. There was and Serbia was quite tough. I mean, I've got I lived there. I've got friends who both uh, Delier, Grabari, the, you know, the ultras of Red Star Belgrade and Partizan. You know, and even, you know, probably my, my closest friend there was like, you know, no one will speak to you because you, you're a journalist, you're British and you're a journalist. You know, you can make it done. So there, there were just some things that, you know, I'm, I'm amazed I got the access I did. But there are other, there are, you know, those are the doors. You know, there are other places as well. I mean, I tried to certain groups in Germany, I tried to contact. They didn't want anything to do with me. But then once, you know, you said to people that you'd speak, spoken to Diabolic at of the Tubular of Lazio, that made things a bit easier. When they said, oh, yeah, you've just spoken to Rafa Dezeo, you know, who's the head of La Dossa of, of, uh, of Boca Juniors, you know. So it was once the first interviews, it kind, of, it kind of snowballed after that. So, but yeah, those are the ones, the main ones, really. Bulgaria was another one, but yeah. When you look at the work you put together for this book, 
you saw so many different cultures of football and so many different extreme ideas that arise from that, you know, whether it's left, right, political, non-political. What do you think it is about the game of football that inspires such extremism in its fans where you don't tend to see that in other sports? Well, I mean, I mean, sport, it naturally lends itself to, to, to a kind of bipolarism, you know. Like you are, you're there and you're going, how often do you see a guy who is calm as you like, but you put him in front of a football match or you put him in front of a basketball game, but let's say football rather than sport, you know, he's got an extreme of emotions. He's screaming, he's distraught, he's screaming, he's distraught. You know, it, it lends itself to that type of personality. And then when you have that, what football has, that I think um, a lot of, most other sports don't have is that it's a truly global game, but it's also something that football stadiums are very reflective of their communities. I, mean, I, found, I found that at the Bank of California Stadium. That's one of the reasons why LAFC has a kind of different identity to Shivas or Galaxy or whatever. You know, it's a downtown team and it's reflected by the fact that people from downtown come to it. And uh, it, around Europe in particular, the football terraces are reflective of a certain strata of society. And in many cases... That is that's not exclusively, but often it's a working class game. It's a male game. It's often, a, you know, a white game, you know. And so what you see is the you have a, a, a community uh, in a football stadium that reflects the community at large and the issues that it has at large in a kind of environment which is extremely extreme. And so, you know, you don't have centrist ultras. You know, you don't have centrist football fans necessarily. You know, it is, it is you know everything's black one day, everything's sunny the next. You know, it's, it's something that kind of defies reason in, in a certain way. So, so yeah, football stadiums just reflect their community and, and it's a certain strata of that community in an environment that I wouldn't say encourages extremism, but it's, it's certainly an outlet for it. I mean, you know, you don't tend to see, like, a group of basketball fans forming a neo-Nazi group. Like, you don't tend to see, you know, cricket fans throughout the world coming together and, and being involved in the same kind of extremism that tends to be connected to the game of football globally. And yet those fans are just as passionate in the stands. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, I mean... Yes, that's true. I mean, although, I mean, if you ever go and watch an India-Pakistan cricket match, you probably wouldn't say that. I mean, it's one of the most political games uh, <laughs> of sport. You can you can go absolutely anywhere. In American sports, for instance, there's very little space and there hasn't really been any space for there to be um, an organisation that is fenced off for supporters, for support groups, for ultras, however you want to call them, right? It's a, it's a corporate environment and... It's something that is very difficult. I mean, I suppose that it's probably a closer kind of approximation would be maybe college football rather than any of the big franchise sports. But the fact is that, you know, since the 60s and even before that in the 50s, you know, you've had a space within football stadiums that is outside of the control of the, whoever owns the football club or whoever runs the football club. And that has built culture years after year after year after year, which gives a kind of institutional memory for ultras. And the fact and the reason why that's in football rather than anything else is because it is the biggest mass sport. You know, it is the biggest number of people go to that on, you know, regular occurrences. Once every Saturday, 3 p.m., you know, there's no other sport really comes close to that. And so there's a space that's existed that has been out of the authorities' control. And I, what's interesting is that uh, obviously uh, the authorities try to are trying to curb that. One place they've done that extremely successfully is in England. 
So you don't have that space anymore. So you don't have that extremism. You don't have that, which is something that, that they want, but it also destroys the indigenous fan culture because there are many problems with hooliganism, which is very different to ultras, part of it, but very different. Um, there's, there are problems in, within the ultras and with the, within the badass and within the torcidas in Brazil as well. Uh, but there's also a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of great activism and a lot of enga engagement of young people in political issues and social issues as well. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's a set of kind of circumstances that kind of coalesce around a game. And if it didn't have this massive global appeal, then I, I think it would be very different. But it's a set of um, conditions that have arisen that allows sport to be that, you know, to football supporting, to have, you know, a space to be political, to be uh, socially minded, to be a, to be a bastard, to do all these things, and and it's unique to football. But you know, it's it's not a space that really exists in American sport or in England anymore. I you know, so I just got it a few days ago because uh, I I had ordered it off of Amazon, and it arrived. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I got I ordered it from Amazon and. Um, I ordered it probably at the beginning of May and it just came a week ago. And so I took, I took the pictures of the chapter from the USA and I sent it to them. So they, we've all read the USA chapter at least. And right. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, we're, I'm in Uruguay right now. Right. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you know, I, I didn't, until I started researching the book, I didn't know the route of Hincha. Oh yeah. Hinchada. You know, yeah. <laughs> Hinchada, you know, which is like, comes from this, you know, uh, this one, the ball blower. From from Natanal, you know, mm -hmm. it, was, it was a crazy yeah, story because because the book isn't, you know, it, of course it has all these stories about me meeting ultra groups, but it's also I wanted it to be, I mean, it's not exhaustive, but a kind of explanation of the history of football mm -hmm. fan culture and where it comes from and why it is certain things look and sound the way they do. So Uruguay was absolutely uh, absolutely central, but I'm glad you've got it because the book is coming out in the states um, in in the fall, I think. I don't know if they're going to keep the title. I guess maybe I, I was worried that they might change it because, you know, um, criticizing the police in America in print is a bit a bit more. I'm, I'm sure there's a First Amendment protection for it, but yeah. they might decide that it might be bad for sales. But I guess now yeah. maybe they'll think it might be good for sales because everybody knows what 1312 is. I think yeah. uh, right. that Pussy Riot just released a song called 1312. You know, like it's it's like it's, it's entering the lexicon. So, yeah, at the end of the book, you talk about your visit to LAFC and Pride Night. You know, if you could describe what you experienced that night and what your reaction was to the TIFO and everything, uh, uh, not only the 3052, but uh, around the LAFC and what's become so quickly. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I contacted Bob first of all, and said, look, I want to come down and, you know, have a look around, speak to some of the fan guys there. You know, I'd I'd heard a great thing from Martino and from other people about what was happening with the 3252 in particular. And what I thought was, well, if I, you know, if I know a few people there and they're open for me to coming, I wanted to find real the nuts and bolts. Like, how do you, how do you start this? Like, who do you go to? How do you build it? And I got in touch with Pat, who's, I think, is he the, the supporters liaison guy? You know, the main guy who's building yeah he's support. he's part of the brand and community department yeah. and yeah he is the supporter relations actually yeah. i think he just got promoted he's still part of the supporter relations but right. at the yeah. time so yeah, i met he up was with the... him and and you know you know it, it then became something else you know it was about it, it was trying to understand la as a city 
and the soccer fans of LA in the city, which have gone back generations, needed to, especially downtown, needed to find a kind of home. You know, it was, and I found, you know, that the way that everybody spoke about LAFC was that, ah, finally, we found a place that we can be ourselves. And, you know, he explained, you know, how the 3252 came, came about, all the different subgroups, um, you know, how about the, the trip to the trip to Germany, where a lot of the capos went to meet the unity, but they weren't allowed in. Again, showing some of the attitude to American soccer fans is that, I mean, unity in 3252 would probably share many of the same concerns about the world, but they, they thought it was too commercial to be, if they didn't let any of the guys onto the yellow wall, which is kind of interesting. And yeah, so I spent a few days kind of, I wanted to go and see how a TIFO was made, you know, in US soccer. So I was there when they practiced putting the TIFO up. And so for me as well, someone who's going to be, who has spent like, you know, two years for this book following around the world fan culture, the idea you could have a pride night, the idea that you could have, you know, something that eulogized and celebrated gay culture, that you would have female fans, you know, a multicultural curve of, of fans, men and women was something that I had not seen up until that point. Um, and then, you know, I came in and well, of course we had the tailgate party first where I had Michelada for the first time which was so eye-opening, something I'll never forget, which I loved, by the way, right up my street. And then, <laughs> um, and then you know, and then I met um, uh, Kelly and, and Breezy, who left a huge impression on me because, you know, it can get you down after a while, spending a lot of time around, you know, I mean, I, there's no two ways about it. I mean, I, I did spend a lot of time meeting and speaking with and, you know, following Nazis around for much 2019. Mm. And then I get to L.A. and, you know, Breezy is this extremely articulate, passionate, dedicated fan leader, you know, of, the, of, of District 9 Ultras, of course, but of, of the 3252 as well. And watching the... Yeah, the so uh, Selly, Selly would be uh, from D9U. Uh, Breezy ah. would be from Los Luckies. That's it, um, Los Luckies. They were yeah. called Los, uh, Lucky Boys, right? They changed the name. Correct, correct, yeah. That was it. And so, yeah, Selly, sorry, not Kelly, Selly. Yeah, I mean, meeting both of those women and, you know, it was, it, it felt like, you know, eating a sorbet or something. It was like, it was, it was amazing. It was just kind of all of the stuff that I'd seen. It was one of the last trips I had as well. It had been quite an exhausting time. I mean, I, I, mean, I was Indonesia, LA, North Africa, uh, Russia, right. all of, you know, it was just, it was everywhere. And then, you know, and I was just like, man, this is, it was, it was kind of inspirational. It was the first time I'd seen it. And, it's always been like, oh, you know, how, how do you get more women involved? How do you get more ethnic minorities involved? And it's, you know, it didn't even, it, it felt to me that LAFC didn't even have to think about it. Like it was just, if this club reflects the community, this is the community and these are the people that are going to be involved in it. And there were some elements of it I found very funny. I mean, there were still kind of like, like the league approved pyro. Like, like that was just, I love that. Like there was like a league approved pyro. Uh, but it was, you know, for me, the old kind of ultras, ultra kind of culture that people revere from Italy in the 80s and 90s it, that's kind of dead you know it's not in Italy necessarily or necessarily the Balkans where you'll see the future of, of the ultra movement you'll, it's in places like LA in Indonesia in North Africa uh, places where there is you know or in Germany especially in Sweden where you have a, you know a modern country that finds a space within the commercialization of football which is inevitable 
where the, a fan culture can exist whilst having integrity. Now, Germany is the leader of that with its 50 plus one. MLS has it. I'm a, I, franchise owners in the US are you know, very different beasts. There is nothing enshrined in the regulations that would stop you know, a, a bad owner from coming in and taking over you know, an MLS club like there would be in Germany because it has the 50 plus one rule, which means no single person can own the majority of the shares. With Red Bull Leipzig. Yeah. I mean, they, they've got round it and same with Hoffenheim and there's, there are others that have had, but it's an exemption that you have to earn. I mean, they bent the rules almost to breaking point Leipzig to make it happen. But yeah, it was to me, you know, coming here and seeing it, it was the sweet spot. You know, it was a sweet spot. It's as close as you could get to kind of having the integrity of a fan, which isn't ultras, by the way. I mean, 3252 wasn't. It was. It's, it had elements of the ultras. It had elements of the Bada. It had elements of the Torcida. I mean, I remember seeing one guy had a river plate tattoo. You know, another guy told me he'd been in Ladosa back in the day at Boca. I don't know if I believed him or not, but he had he had the Copa Libertadores tattoo on his thing from Boca. Um you know, it was, it, to me, this was a good, they found a good sweet spot. And I just kept going back to thinking what it would be like in Warsaw if you went to a Legia game and they decided to put a kind of Rainbow or a Freddie Mercury TIFO. Although, to be fair, that most of them probably would assume that Freddie Mercury isn't gay because they couldn't imagine Freddie Mercury being gay, like most women in Britain in the 70s. It, you know, they, they, they'd, probably set the, they'd probably set the stadium on fire. You know, that's the kind of attitude a lot of Polish ultras have. So going from that to L.A., which is, you know, the week before you had, you know, AOC TIFO. You had... Yeah, it was the uh, Women's Night. So we had women's the, the night, women... Yeah, the yeah, women, um, the, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it was kind of... It's what I needed to see at that moment, I think. So Do you how think many... that there is space within football culture for a progression like this within other clubs? Do you think that this is something that the culture or the structures that they have in those places would ever even allow ideology to progress to this point? In some cases, yes. You know, I think the Balkans is a long, is a long way from it. Eastern and Central Europe especially, there is no, you know, there are very little, there aren't many green shoots of kind of progressive fan culture there. There's some, but usually in Phoenix clubs, uh, things that have been started again from the beginning. I mean, you look to somewhere like Sweden, for instance, which, and also Germany, although it has a progressive fan culture in some ways, in other ways it doesn't. And what it is about is that there is an umbrella of left-wing and right-wing groups. I mean, they all have a political identity. Main, a lot of them have political identities. And some of it on the right really does, you know, touch on uh, some quite extreme dark places. But they also agree on certain issues which they come together on. So whether that is, you know, I mean, you know, against the control by the police and the state, against being priced out and commercialised, about, you know, maintaining the integrity of the supporters as a powerful block within German football is something that every, everybody agrees on. So if you look to Sweden, for example, they've got 50 plus one, but it's much less political. In fact, I'd say it's apolitical. And you, you, I, I stood with the Hammerby fans and there were guys there who were definitely like Swedish Democrats, like, you know, very, very right wing. Other guys, very left wing. I mean, I think it has the highest proportion of women going to going regularly to football matches. I think it's something like 40%, which is very, I mean, I've stopped 50%, but it's pretty high. So it's it depends what the society is and what the what the the neighbourhood is where the club comes from and whether you know you, you can't you can't just go to you know Belgrade and build a progressive fan culture. The fans have to want it, 
And if they want it, they'll build it and it'd be reflected in what happens. And so, yeah, it, 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 as neighbourhoods change, as, as towns and cities change, and so, you know, fans change. And so one, one prime example of this, which when you read it, you'll, you'll see this about Roma, which is the second time I mentioned them, you know, Roma ultras, because Lazio ultras were always considered quite right wing, Roma ultras are always very left wing, uh, communist almost, because central Rome was, you know, a base for the Communist Party during the 60s and 70s, during a very bloody period of history, the years of lead, which, you know, I mean, which I didn't know much about until I started researching the book. But, you know, hundreds of people were killed in basically a guerrilla war that went on for like 12 years in a, you know, in a major European country, you know, after the Second World War. And, you know, Roma fans, because the Communist Party had such power base in the centre, in the kind of most, in the, in the poorer districts in the centre of Rome, that was reflected in kooks and the uh, curvasud and in the in the groups they had like the fedayeen which is a group you know c- takes its name from a, a palestinian liberation group you know which is a cause celeb in in the 70s and then as rome changes you know as rome becomes you know it becomes like italy changes but rome changes and it becomes much more right wing then the nature of the of the fans change and the nature of the groups change and so now you've got a situation where actually roma and lazio fans actually probably agree much more on pol- politically than than they did but they still have you know the color the north versus south there's still a rivalry but it certainly has changed the nature of it so it's when areas change then there's nothing stopping you know groups becoming much more progressive but also it, can, it does work the other way around i'm curious to to know especially somebody who is so heavily involved in journalism and you know you have a better sense of the european feel you know, we here at, uh, at LAFC had been trying to build something very unique. And, you know, I think that we have used a lot of what we see in Europe as examples. Do you feel like the MLS is already at a point where we are kind of getting recognized in Europe as a league on the cusp of being something? Because ultimately we want to be respected, right? We want to be taken very seriously. We want them to, you know ultimately look at our our club and say hey look that that's a club that we're not we're no longer going to look down upon and you know i i know that there's still probably a lot that has to be done in terms of creating our history and being consistent and things like that but i i'm just trying to get a feel for what you feel like mls as a league or particularly lafc is in the view of europe yeah i mean as as a league i think that you know i mean american soccer has come a come a long long way i mean I mean, I was in Brazil during 2014 for the World Cup as well for the national team. So, you know, you can see the excitement that was generated there. But also as a, as a league, the players that it can attract, the players that it sells. You know, it is, it is, you know, it is now. I mean, it's not in the top one of the top five European leagues, but it's, it's an important destination. It's an important league. In terms of fan culture, I think that, you know, 1996 was MLS first season, right? Or MLS first season. And, you know, so we're talking you know, uh, 20, 25, 25 years almost, you know, it's going to be 25 years, yeah. years next year. And that's nothing in the space of football. And the fact is that the, for, for most groups, it like the integrity, you know, that integrity that you have through time, through building on top of like the, the, the previous generation, because ultras and, and fan culture is, it's a fluid thing. It's generations. And it's a young person's uh, culture. And then it gets, uh, the ne- they get old, they move on, they get replaced by someone. But the, the, the roots of that institutional memory are always there. So I, I don't think that groups in Europe be looking and thinking, ah, okay, they're improving. It does happen because the more 
Tifo, the more pyro, the more climactic uh, technical things you do, you know, it does get mentioned and uh, and noticed. But I mean, it's it's worth noticing that even Germany is considered by kind of the the kind of real hardcore to be, you know, that, that it's too commercial, that it, it's too practical, it too, it's, there's too much accommodation with the authorities, that it's not uh, outsider enough. So when you consider that, like Borussia Dortmund is, you know, almost at the gold standard of, of of supporter culture, yet even they're seen as kind of like sellouts by even other German football clubs. You know, it's it's going to be a long way for MLS teams to kind of even get close to that kind of. But I I wouldn't worry about any of that. Just keep doing what you're doing because ultimately, you know, when I when I speak to English friends and they'd be like, oh yeah, but that was, uh, yeah, but that you know, like they just think it's going to be like a terrible experience and. You know, I I turn around and tell them like I had more fun at an LAFC game than I've had at an English game in about fifteen years because you know it's been overpriced. The atmosphere is dead. The, the institutional memory of the sport culture doesn't exist anymore, and there's no space really to organise anything because it's just it's much more corporate than MLS. It's much more controlled than MLS, and so you know uh, keep doing what you're doing and and you know was it in the Wayne's world was it when he gets he wants to have the festival you know build it and they'll come you know yeah. and that's it build it they'll come just keep doing what you're doing it's you know there's it'll be recognized by the people that you'll care about and that's it that's what matters I love how that quote is now being remembered for Wayne's world and not field of dreams uh, yeah. which uh, the movie Wayne's world is referencing in that case but uh, I mean look um, I mean we can get into we don't want to get into a baseball versus cricket discussion here but I mean you know the field of dreams isn't you know wouldn't have been a a big hit here you know. Well, I'm all. Well, we would like to thank you sincerely for your time today, which you've been most gracious with. Again, we have James Montague with us, the author of 1312 Among the Ultras. He's also written Billionaires Club, When Friday Comes, and 31 Nil. All should be on your recommended reading list for any fan out there. You can find James through his social media hashtag, which is at James P I O T R Poitra, I believe. If I'm Piotra, am I yeah, yeah. Piotra, yes. Yeah, sorry. So again, uh, James J A M E S P I O T R on social media. Uh, we do have one last question for you today, sir, and that is, what does shoulder to shoulder mean to you? Solidarity. That's it. You know, shoulder your shoulder to shoulder with the people around you in your in your group, and and you know, you want solidarity with the people you're standing next to. I think that's uh, that. What that's all you can ask for. Well, again, sir, thank you so much for joining us. Apologies that uh, we are not in the friendly confines of our normal studio; that we are spread out across the globe here today. But able to join digitally, if it's not with the same equipment and surroundings we are used to. The roosters are crowing in the background here. We will bid you farewell, sir. Thank you again so much for joining us. On behalf of Chris, Christian, Wilton, and myself, Jonathan, thank you, sir, so much for your time. And to everyone out there in the community, grab yourself a copy of 1312. Maybe before they change the title for the American market, <laughs> go online and grab one from UK. Thank you again, sir, for joining well, us. Well, maybe, maybe they should keep it because if it gets banned, I mean, that's quite good for sales eventually, right? If you ban a book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're saying that the sales, uh, so right now you can buy your book. It is the European copy, but you said that it is coming out in America. Yeah, yeah. So there's going to be there's going to be an American uh, edition of it that comes out in the fall. I think it'll be probably September, October. I've got to check, but uh, yeah, there's going to be a specific edition. So yeah, it's up to them, I suppose. I'd like I'd like them to keep it, but it's obviously become a completely different code now than it was two weeks ago. 
Right. I, well, I think you know, it's, it's for Donald, Donald Trump to say it. If Donald Trump says it, then they'll keep it, I think. Oh. <laughs> so, but again, thank you very much, James, for coming on. We really appreciate it. And uh, if you're ever in L.A. again for another match, let us know. And we'd love to, uh, you know, meet in person. Uh, I, I will I, make you micheladas from scratch. You have my guarantee. Are you gonna Are you gonna put clam juice in it? Oh, I, I mean, you got to do it the right way. It has to have that <laughs> seafood element if it's gonna be a proper michelada. Whether you use a clam reduction or like a shrimp boil reduction, I mean, there's different schools of thought here, but we'll make you a proper one. I, I can't wait. All right, thanks again, James. We'll talk to you soon, guys. Thank you very much. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. They won't need to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.